I'm happy to have you all back in the vault. I've been planning to do some research into the music of the Cold War. And to start the series, I have an interview with a musician that might seem to be an unexpected character in the great big history of those Cold War decades. But I wouldn't lead you astray. I promise that what he has to say will really offer a valuable perspective on the cultural tensions that were as much a part of the Cold War as the nuclear weapons and rocket technology that are so often the focus of so much of this history. The Cold War Vault is now in its third season, and I'm trying to introduce some interviews and change the format a little, while not being too disruptive. If you're not a fan of the interviews, well, listen anyway. And look forward to the next episode, which is going to continue to explore the music of the Cold War. So let's take a trip back to 1977, this time on the Cold War Vault. John McEwen is a multi-instrumentalist best known for his skill on the banjo, and as a founding member of the prolific and profoundly influential Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. He's made more than 40 albums, with four going platinum and five going gold. He's produced seven albums and 14 film scores, and has been nominated for Grammys, Emmys, the CMAs, and the ACMs. He's the author of The Life I've Picked. John has played an estimated 9,500 shows around the world over his career, but he's here in the vault to talk about one particular tour that took place in 1977 with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band to the Soviet Union. John McEwen, it's so great to have you here in the Cold War Vault. Well, like I said to my mom, thanks for having me. And it's good to be here. There's a lot of things about that Cold War that are still cold today and the things that happened that reverberate today even though the wall came down 15 years after we were there and it has been no wall and all that since uh 1990s it's still a much pent-up society but what would you like to know about the 1977 nitty gritty dirt band trip well, the nitty-gritty dirt band trip in 1977 was really pretty revolutionary. There'd been some artistic exchange before that, usually in the form of classical music and dance, but this was the first time that a rock band, if I can call it that, was allowed to tour. So how did you make that happen? Had it arranged that the Russians would bring over certain types of acts if we bring over okay america take bonjour ballet and you take the classical quartet and we have a solo singer that sings he's a soprano and and we will bring a classical ballet and and what a rock band uh what do you mean rock band ended up being a dirt band close to rock <laughs> well they had to they had to by agreement find a group that represented uh, an American way of life, both of recording and doing music, one that made their own decisions, their own democratic decisions. They weren't driven by a, either a star or the company. And if you were looking for a bunch of anarchists that make their, made their own decisions, we found them, buddy. Come over here, comrade. 
anyway, they <laughs> they picked us over a bunch of other groups. How exactly did they end up picking you? We had a friend that we didn't know was a friend, but uh, let's say a fan, David Hess, that worked in the State Department, and he was pitching us. He was involved. He was in in Moscow actually at the time. You ought to get the nitty gritty dirt band. Well, he was on our side, and although they looked at the Eagles, the Grateful Dead, um, Chicago, and a bunch of other groups, uh, uh, that one group had too many drugs. And uh, so they figured either we were safe or not very good or something. I don't know. And when we found out the fourth time that they had come to see us, which was in Aspen, Colorado. They came to see us the fourth time. Mm -hmm. they'd, they'd been to other shows around the country. We found out that we were going to be going. It was quite a shock. And we also realized we, we are going to represent American music. We better take a... F hey, Jan. Jan Garrett. Do you want to go with us? Oh, good. We need a, we need a girl singer, you know? And... She, uh, Jan Garrett jumped in. We learned a couple songs with her. And, uh, well, we knew a couple. We learned a couple. And when the band went over there, we represented Chuck Berry and Doug Kershaw and all kinds of people because they didn't know American music. That's a question I wanted to ask later. Had any of your music, not just American music, but the band's music in particular, had it leaked in through smuggled bootlegs? No, bootlegs were very tight. It was a jail sentence. It was, and you don't want to go to jail in Russia. You go to jail, and then you can't get a job when you get out. It's illegal to not have a job then. It was against the rules. So bootlegs of books, records, if you brought them in, you were taking a high risk. But they had Bones records, see? You, don't know, you know what a Bones record is, Mr. Coldzor? I've heard of it a time or two. I might even have one in my collection. It's a bootleg record cut into an old uh, X-ray film, isn't it? It's it's a, a new X-ray. Ivan, I go to I going to London, Ivan. I I tell KGB I must get X-ray that they don't have X-ray machine here, so I get permission to go, and I I get X X Ivan. I get X-ray, and he goes to get his X-ray, and thank you very much. And he takes the x-ray, which was heavy celluloid film that was like, you know, an eighth of an inch thick. And it was like um, 12 inches by 18 inches, maybe 14 by 18. And he cut a record into it. You remember in the old days of the 50s, 60s, 70s, you'd get a paper record in a book? Or a very thin plastic one in a, in a book or a box of cereal. Sure. So it was that it was cheaper than that acetate that celluloid was, but you could record onto it, onto the X-ray. And when we go back, we go back to the customs. We just show we have my X-ray, and they hold it up to the light if they bother to look at it and go, "Oh, he's X-ray. It's a put it through." And they're looking at the record that's cut on the X-ray with the grooves around it. He takes it to someone's house, and they record. They, they're set up to record. And that was how hard it was I, to get music in. I signed a Temptations album. It was only 15 years old. 
and and I signed an Aretha Franklin album that somebody had that was about ten years old. But no, you know, every town had one radio station, and you'd buy a radio tuned to that frequency in that town, and you'd turn it on or off, and that was it—an on-off switch with a volume knob. And uh, I always figured a defector might go to New York and go, "Oh, I must get eighty-seven radios." There's so many stations. So had anyone heard your band before? Anyone you met in the Soviet bloc? Yeah. There was a guy I ran into in Latvia, for instance. It took a, a, a time to get to, uh, took a, a, a one meeting. And then after meeting him about three times, I found out that he had been in a group. He was afraid to talk about it. But Pitts Anderson, he would go by uh, Pete. He liked. He loved rockabilly, American rockabilly music. Only in a few years, the few years before we came, he was trying to play around Latvia. He would get the audience too riled up, and in every band, there'd be a KGB reporting member. And uh, last night, uh, the the group I play with, they they play an American song. Okay, I write that down. You know, whatever that reporting member reported was he was due to report uh imagine having an fbi guy in your band it's like weird but <laughs> pete was reported many times and and his mother called him from moscow and he was in riga latvia and latvia did not want to be a soviet anyway his mother oh pete you must quit doing that they're going to take my apartment away the government was going to kick her out if her son didn't stop playing music. That went on. He got beat up one night after a concert, a concert, a performance in somebody's basement with, a, with 80 people there. Uh, they didn't have open concerts. It wasn't like America. It was not like America. Let's just say that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one night after... One performance, two guys beat him up. Only they didn't take anything. And there was no reason to beat him up. They put him in the hospital. And it happened again. Then his wife had their first baby. He was still playing. But by the time she had the baby, he was convinced to stop. He'd been stopped for about a year. Maybe that's why they had the baby. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, well, she had had her baby, and Pete was at the hospital, and he couldn't see it because it was you know we come you come back tomorrow we show you baby, and he comes back the next day and sorry Mr. Anderson baby die and the baby hadn't died well he asked to see the body we take care of the body nothing to see his wife divorced him and he went on a drunk for many years and then I met him Latvia was changing after we played there Gorbachev came into office you know Glasnost helped open things up I like to tell people our tour did so good that they didn't let anyone in for eight years and that was partially true people were going nuts anyway so here's Pete Anderson he'd been sending me mail ever since I went there Sometimes I would get it. Sometimes I would get an, a, another letter that says, 
I sent you a letter last month, you know. No, I didn't get it. I'd send him mail. Some of it would. Anyway, then the mail started going through. He started sending music, and he's now, they put him on a Latvian stamp, Pete Anderson, as a cultural hero. Um, well, I got him to come to Wichita and put him on radio. Okay. He was the happiest I've ever seen. I've ever seen a person be happy. He was happy. And he was wonderfully happy. He never thought when I first met him, he never thought he would get out of Russia. He had me over at his house in Riga, outside of Riga. He told me, now here's what you must do to get rid of tail. Uh, you know, the KGB was following us everywhere. And which I didn't believe. It was Riga that I ended up believing it. Where it's like mid almost midnight and I'm up in my room and this guy points out at the light, see that car under traffic light with two men in it. Yeah, I see it. In two minutes, it will leave, and another car with two men in it will be. And sure enough, right on schedule, the watch guards of the hotel came and went. And uh, Pete was, take this trolley, go two stops north, and then jump off and go on the one coming south, and and go three stops, and get off and go around the corner, and my car will be there with me in it. And he was right. And I lost the guys that were tailing me. So in 1977, in Riga, you learned how to escape the security tales and get outside of the city. Um, were you worried at all? Uh, as a foreigner, I mean, did you did you just expect to be kicked out of the country, or was there a, a deeper sense of dread in defying the, the Soviet security state? I was, so you see, I was going 25 miles out of town, and our, our limit was... 10 miles. I was worried going out to Pete's house 25 miles away, mm -hmm. um, but only worried about getting a ticket or something. Yeah. I didn't I didn't worry. I worried for him. So we're at his house, which had three families living in it. They put two other families in this big house. He and his wife had the living room, uh, a kitchen, bathroom, uh, and a bedroom section and when I got there there were about 20 other people hanging around waiting to see the visiting dignitary talk about America and I talked about America I told them things like we have stores called 7-eleven and you go up to and you can buy milk anytime and I let it get translated people milk you buy milk anytime oh was such a country because I knew that milk was scarce and basic commodities were scarce. They ran out. And I said, and you can get gas anytime and you can pull your motorhome up and fill it up. And a motorhome, oh, that's if you have, oh, maybe a moderate amount of money, you buy this house that drives. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> It's a, you know, it's like you're a camper. They'd seen campers, but they didn't have anything like a motorhome. When I got back, it was one of the things that was rather disgusting about Americans. One of my brothers-in-law was, I was at his house. This is right after the Russia trip. He was, 
I don't know what's wrong with this country. I had to go fill up my motorhome, and it cost me almost $80. And then I had to fill up the boat, because I'm going to go up to the lake, and I had to add Bob chip in some money. He paid for half the gas, and that was $20. Yeah, and, I'm, yeah, and what are you doing? Well, we're going to go up to the lake and mess around with the boat. But I, I, you're complaining that you you can pay for it, or you, you don't want to? I, I didn't even get into it. It just made me ill. Except for the KGB, you had very positive interactions with the people on the on the tour. But I'm curious if there was any anti-American sentiment among the people you met. We had people coming up to us quite often, wanting to hear about America, wanting to look at us, wanting to... One guy in in Red Square comes up to me and said, you, would you like to sell American dollar? I give you two rubles. I give you three rubles. He went up to seven rubles for a dollar. And uh, you like to buy heroin? No, I don't want any. Uh, you know, cocaine. <laughs> Come with me to Freedom Square. I get you cocaine. No, I no thank you. And, uh, and that was the second day in Russia. I don't know if he was KGB or what, but we didn't buy, me and Gary, my photographer. But back to Riga, I, I, uh, anywhere, we weren't, I wasn't afraid. I don't walk the world afraid, I walk cautious. I, I look at things and this isn't good here, I'm gonna leave, and if I can leave, I leave. Mm-hmm. I don't like particular, oh, let me get closer to the fire. You know, what's, I'll look at it from a distance on television. Because uh, too many illogical things happen in, in the course of an event. Of, uh, the gun went off and it, it killed them. The, 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 the such and such caught fire and it fell. Or somebody got in a fight. And they just wanted to, you know, the human emotion is so dark sometimes. It just wants to kill. You know what I mean? Uh, it gets in, you get in a fight. I'm gonna, uh, that's the same emotion, yeah. though. I look for the one that is around the coffee table or the, the kitchen table, the one where you're laughing with friends and you forgot what you're laughing about. That's another human emotion that is wonderful to deal with. You've been there before. So it seems like overall the tour did a lot of good, or at least, I mean, you were successful cultural ambassadors. There was some skepticism by one of the tour people that was helping. We had a lady named Marina that was a main tour manager. She was not a party member. And Arena was her assistant. She was a party member. And she had a bun on her head and she was tall and she was wore red all the time. And you know, we get to Leningrad, the audience will be more respectful. You might get an encore. You will probably get encore, but it will be very respectful. They not like. They won't be like the Armenian or the Latvian. These people were getting up and they were dancing and they were jumping around and, you know, the the audience in Leningrad will will be watching very carefully and enjoying what you do, but they will be respectful and. I'll never forget coming off stage after the third encore in Leningrad. And uh, 
uh, already a girl had run up on stage and kissed one of the guys on the first encore. The second encore, a sailor and another guy came up and started playing air guitar with another guy. And uh, the third encore, they were up against the front edge of the stage. Do it, look, it looked like an MTV shoot. It's 1977. So we're going to go back and do maybe, it looks apparently, a fourth encore in the October Revolution Hall with 2,200 people in it. And standing in the wings is Irena with her pretty red suit on, with her hand up against her cheek, going, I never thought in Leningrad. In Leningrad, look at that. You know, I said, yeah, Irena, it's, it's American music. It it was it was um, it wasn't us. It was just they went nuts. <laughs> they were free and they loved it. I think the government could tell. That's why they didn't let anyone in for eight years. You know, we first got there. I had an indication of this when we first got there, staying at a hotel with five thousand rooms, five thousand rooms, eating at a restaurant that said sold out, that had long tables that were empty, that find out at the end of the week that sold out sign says that for Russians, not for tourists. And it says it in Russian only. And we're sitting at the table and this band starts playing. And they're okay, but I went up and asked them, if we could use their equipment, because we didn't have any. We were waiting for it to get to the gig. I had my own banjo. They sure. And we went up and played three songs. So, hours later, Gary and I come back. Gary Register, our photographer that I took with us. And uh, I hear it. <laughs> I hear a tape being played and rewound, played and rewound, and it's the band. They're in the broom closet that was their dressing room. Somebody had a tape recorder, and they'd recorded our performance. And I asked the guy that I kind of knocked on the door, you know, uh, uh, yeah, you're listening to what we did. Yes. And he said something I'll never forget. I, I told him, I said, you know, we weren't very good a while ago. Uh, we were just playing around. And he goes, in your music, we hear the freedom of America. And I went, what? And he said it again. Uh, with your music, when you play, we can hear the freedom you play with, the freedom you have. Oh, to have that freedom... The Soviets placed an intelligence plant in the tour, the tour manager, clearly, watching what you were doing. So I need to ask if, uh, well, I need to ask if anyone from U.S. intelligence came along on the tour. This Brant Bassett guy came along as a cultural liaison. We never understood what that meant. He was going to translate, he was going to help us through, he was going to... He was on the whole trip, but he had, he had a diplomatic briefcase, which meant only he could open it. You know, the diplomatic mm -hmm. trust is kept quite well. 
and only he could open it. But he disappeared. We played five different cities, and we were in Moscow twice. But he would disappear the first day and show up maybe later that night or the next day. And Marina, our tour manager, was sitting around the middle of the second week or the beginning of the third, just talking at night, you know, after a show. So I think Brent Bessage is CIA. And I said, you know, I think you're right. You know, and she goes, well, everybody must have job. Uh, Raina is a party member and, and Brent is your CIA. And I think she was right because on that first night, I had a letter handed to me by those people outside, the, the two-page letter that I sh ended up taking to Brant Bassett because he was not known yet to me to be a, anything but our counselor or whatever. Hey, Brant, I've got this letter these guys given to me, but it's written in Latvian. Can you, it's got three pages of, of violations of things that they have agreed to not do that they're doing and news about a couple plane crashes. You know, things that were supposed to have been reported that were ignored, <laughs> things that, things. Uh, yeah, let me look at that. Give it to me. And I asked him the next day, how is it with that letter? Said, oh, it's taken care of. Well, what'd you do with it? I did, did you get it translated? That's taken care of. You don't need to ask about it. Now, Brant, what did you do with the letter? I gave it to the proper, you know, it was like, why did I do that? I should have, I should have taken it to Rolling Stone. I would have had a front page article. Great. And that was the end of that. And, uh, but he was all along for the rest of the tour with his disappearing act. <laughs> To encapsulate the good and the bad aspects of the cultural exchange, uh, the positive interactions and the suspicion, it was suggested to me that I ask you about the shop girl, the uh, the Riga shop girl. The Riga, oh, yeah, people, people often ask, uh, did you meet any girls? Well, it was very hard to meet anyone and get any kind of, trust built because they were so afraid because you found out that you'd meet people and they'd want to talk and they would talk but they would be picked up and questioned they would be uh followed why you talk to an american you're going to defect are you getting goods from them you know all that kind of stuff one of our more amorous types that was a road road crew guy finally made enough of a friend of a girl that works in a dollar store. The dollar store is a store that only takes foreign currency in this sense. It's not general dollar or somebody. That foreign currency was very valuable to the Russians and they would sell things to party members or outside of the country dignitaries. And we were allowed to go in there and look around and they had things made in other countries that a Soviet citizen non-party member could not get to. They had Italian shoes and French shirts and, and uh, they had some nice stuff. And this girl that worked in this one in Riga, 
convince her to take her day off and spend it with us because we were going to the beach. And that beach is up on the Baltic Sea. We had a great day at the beach. Through the Frisbee, uh, walked around, played on playground equipment, and then got on the bus and came back. It was about an hour bus ride. Saw countryside, and we bade her goodbye. And two days later, we were leaving, and Leonard went in to say goodbye to her, and she wouldn't talk. She would only look straight ahead. And, and she, he'd walk up to her, and she'd walk the other way, like two magnets. You know, one was repelling the other. And finally, he goes, what, is, what are you doing? She goes, I cannot talk to you. I come back, and they question me all night. They think I'm going to defect. They told me, do not talk to Americans. I thank you. Goodbye. And that was like it. And we sent we sent Brandt into the store because he looked Russian and he spoke better Russian than most Russians, and uh, which was a little suspicious right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One concert radio was saying, "Brandt speaks such good Russian. I, I, I don't. I need to learn from him." You know, he was arguing with backstage people about how he should be in the concert because he. And he almost got thrown out. But he was arguing in a Ukrainian dialect. And it was a little suspicious. But he went, he, he was an American, so he was with us. <laughs> I didn't care what his job was. And uh, he nosed around and found out that she'd been threatened. Found out about that her career had been threatened by being with us for a few hours. And, and we left town. Well, I'm curious about how the trip ended. So uh, any memories or thoughts about the end of this uh, now famous 1977 uh, tour? We came back. We flew on Aeroflot, which is, is the Russian airline. It was so smoky. It was amazing. Of course, you can't smoke on a plane now, which is great, but... You could then, 1977, you could not see from the back to the front of the plane because of cigarette smoke. And I was, we landed here. We got, I got so sick that I was sick for 10 days. And uh, it was just really weird. That was the last thing. Okay, I've had it. (laughs) But uh, overall, the people we met, they were wonderful. The food we ate, no artificial flavors and colors, but they ran out often of things. Oh, you just ran out of chicken? Well, I'll have uh, fish, I guess. You know. Um, oh, good, we have that. And this is at a major hotel. The uh, transportation system was amazing um, at, at times. And then sometimes it was like, it, when it was amazing, like the hydrofoil in Leningrad, it was amazing, the big hydrofoil boat in mm. Leningrad. But watching the food line in that Moscow drugstore, waiting to get into the dairy aisle, 100 people lined up. They let in 10 people at a time to the dairy aisle. We could not just open up. It would, be, it would get too crowded. Oh, yeah, it would. 
all those people would fight over everything. But they'd only let 10 people at a time in because they were going to run out, and they knew it. This is a supermarket. We're, we're in America. Oh, okay, that's outdated. Throw it out. Throw it out. Oh, throw that one out. Throw that out. You know, things get outdated and thrown out more than they get more than they get eaten. I think in Russia, it's just everything gets bought. Maybe that's a good thing. They don't waste a lot. Yeah, it's a it's a good place to be here. And it needs some improvements, and Russia needs a lot of improvements, even with the Cold War warm. Something I didn't mention at the at the top is a, a new book, The Russian Trip, is a forthcoming project of photos and stories about this 1977 tour. Uh, what was the inspiration for that project? I've had so many questions over the years. What was Russia like? What was the Soviet Union like? That I can't have everybody over to my house to show them a couple hundred photos. I want to do a, a tabletop book of where the people put us. Where the people, meaning whoever's listening or the American audience. We went over there because you gave us a career. You liked some of the music we were doing. And you bought some records, and that kind of thing happened. So now I got to put this book together to show you where we've been. And uh, I just got into opening those files uh, last month, and you came along at a good time. I, I'd open the files to get a couple pictures, but it was hard to look at. Hard to look at. It, a lot of snapshots. One guy's dead. Hmm. Oh, wait, one, two. Uh, and two crew guys are gone. And there was a good times and difficult. But now I go, I don't care if it's hard to look at. It should be in a book. Somebody has to on And I've got interest in a tabletop book that would have these photos full size. And uh, I'm going to try to get that done. In the, and for next year, I have a book of my own, The Life I've Picked, doing okay. It's been out a couple years, but I'm doing a tabletop book of The Circle Be Unbroken album. Will The Circle Be Unbroken album? I put that together in 1971. My brother produced it and made the record stand out beyond what it could have been if it was in my hands or the band's hands. He made it look great and sequenced it and sound great. And he recorded it two tracks. And uh, it's on the Amazon charts today. Number three. On, it's been number one for several weeks, but it's number three on Bluegrass now. Yeah, it's been there for a year since Ken Burns aired his show, Country Music. Uh, I have 20 minutes in episode six talking about, episode six is titled, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? And, and in that, I talk about the Circle album for 22 minutes. And, 
Oh, I'm in a couple other segments too, but that's what happens there. John McEwen has contributed to a book scheduled for release next year titled The Russian Trip Down the Red Brick Road, which features detailed stories and over 200 photos, many unreleased, chronicling the nitty-gritty dirt band's famous tour of the Soviet Union in 1977. And of course, you can read John's autobiography, The Life I've Picked, which is available now everywhere. John McEwen, thank you so much for talking with me here in the Cold War Vault. Oh, sure. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Well, I don't know if the Cold War is still on, but sometimes it seems like it's gotten colder in the last few years. And to all of you, thank you for listening to The Vault. This episode was produced by me, DJ Kinney. If you'd like to see some of those pictures we were talking about and a few historical articles from The New York Times and others, consider becoming a Patreon subscriber. All of that will be delivered to you directly. You can follow the show on Facebook, of course, but the best way to help is to subscribe and review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So while a new Cold War may be getting colder, it's warm down here in the vault. Until next time.